want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5, Acts 5. And you're going to have to ask yourself, how in the world does this fit with what we just sang? How does it fit? In a moment, you will hear about some people who were struck dead. How in the world does that fit with this statement that uh, death is crushed to death, which we absolutely believe? That's not just a great turn of a phrase. That is, that's truth. In my studies this week, as far as I can tell, there were several who were struck dead and are recorded in the Bible. Two instances in the Old Testament. You have Nadab and Abihu. Uh, they offered what is called strange fire or improper fire. Now, what does that mean to us? Well, it, basically what they did was they tried to worship God in a way that He had not prescribed. Well, how serious can that be? Really? It tells us what a holy God He is. It reminds us that He is the one that says what glorifies Him. We are not God and He is. And then we see later there's Uzzah who reached out to steady the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark is being transported to Jerusalem. One would think if the Ark of the Covenant is going to fall on the ground to reach out and to steady it so it doesn't would be a good thing. They were told not to touch it. And he was struck dead immediately. Now, in the New Testament, there are, as far as I can tell, two instances. The one before us that we will be reading and commenting on, and then there's an implicit one. Now, I want to read and comment on this passage, and then we're going to get to the implicit one because it impacts us today, even as we head towards the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that you would make your word clear, but we pray that it would be your spirit that would speak to hearts, needy hearts that have come to you. We want to hear from you. And then, Lord, will you mold our lives to be the people that you have called us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to remind you of the context of this Acts 5 passage. And so, obviously, you look back at the end of Acts chapter 4. 
It says, beginning with verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each one as uh, any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, that's the context. It's an important context because evidently that's what was going on among many of them. They were selling and bringing to share with others who had need. And it gave to one couple an idea. Perhaps they saw that Barnabas was rejoicing. Perhaps he was commended by some. We don't have that in, recorded in the Scripture. But could it be that they said, well, well we want that. And so we read in Acts 5, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now get the picture. Ananias is going to give something. From a human perspective, what he's about to give seems generous. He does the right thing. He talks with his wife about what he's going to give. That's the right way to do it. So far, so good. But then the problem comes. They decide to hold back. Why is that a problem? Well, let's move on. Verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. That's the problem. Was it a sin for him not to give all the money to God? No. That was not the sin. That was not commanded. Barnabas didn't have to do that. No one else in the community had to do that. There is not a command to that effect. Peter makes it clear that they were not required to give everything. It was theirs to do with whatever they decided. The problem was the lie. And it wasn't even just a, a lie 
to the other ones in the church, that would have been serious. But the penalty was because of the lie to the same holy God that struck down those in the Old Testament because they did not do what He said to do. Their sin was the hypocrisy of pretending to give all they had. They plotted it, and then they pretended to give it all. Now, here's the thing we've got to understand about this. How, how did how'd Peter even know that? Evidently, God revealed it. There's no other uh, way that we see, at least from what's recorded in the Scripture, that they would even know. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. The wages of sin is death, and Ananias got what we all deserve when we sin. But he got it immediately, and he got it decisively. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for that amount or for so much. Sapphira didn't know what had happened to her husband. She has her opportunity to repent of her hypocrisy. She cannot blame it on her husband. They decided together. But then here she is following through with her very own hypocrisy. The opportunity to repent, and she doesn't. Verse 9. Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband and are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Is there a greater understatement in the Scripture than that? Great fear. As the word spread, great fear came. The lessons, very quickly. What the Old Testament passages and, and this one have in common is that each of the times where we see these people 
um, struck dead, and that doesn't mean it's the only time that God ever did it, but these are the ones that are recorded. Each of these times were transition times in the life of God's people. It appears that at each of these transition times, God wants to reinforce, to remind of the seriousness of sin. That this must not ever be taken lightly. Does he always strike people dead for their sin? Everyone in this room knows the answer to that. No, he doesn't. But he could. It would be his right, and as a holy God, if he chose to always immediately destroy those who sin, it would be his right. It is his standard. It is the wages that he has promised. And yet, he doesn't. Now, in each of these biblical cases, these folks that are struck dead, and here, to me at least, is the shocker. It appears that they were all actually believers. Now, we don't know hearts. We don't know, and some would want to argue that Ananias and Sapphira were not believers at all, that that's what carried through to those actions. And the Scripture does not specifically say what their hearts are or what the results of this other than the temporal results. But... I'm not sure that even matters that much for our sake today. It appears that all of these were believers who sinned and received a temporal punishment, one in this world, from God to illustrate what it is to be before a holy God. A second lesson. Look at how Satan attacks the church. We are going to see this as we go through the, the book of Acts. The first way, if you remember, as we've gone through these chapters, he tried to destroy the church was from the outside, was from persecution. What happened when he persecuted the church? And we'll see this even further when later on the church is scattered and, and it makes it grow even more. But that's what happened. Persecution comes, it purifies the church, and the church continued to thrive. Satan's plan did not work. And then he tried to destroy it from within. He wanted the people in Jerusalem to be able to say, the church is full of hypocrites. Perhaps the one who bought the land, who would have spread that, saying, yeah, yeah, they pretended like they gave it all, but they got away with it. The church is full of hypocrites. And God said, no, it is not. God overrules when Satan attacks 
the church. But there's a third thing we need to understand from this too, and that is the importance of church discipline. You might say, church discipline? Well, that's pretty radical church discipline there. Well, yes, it is. That's directly from God. But church discipline in this point. This was a public sin, not a private one. It affected the church, and that type of sin must be dealt with. Otherwise, those outside the church can say the church is full of hypocrites. As long as we are dealing with sin and we are uh, acknowledging it and repenting of it, uh, they can say the church is full of hypocrites, but that's not true. We are only hypocritical if we say we hate sin, but then refuse to deal with it. But here's the other part that church discipline brings. Look at the result. Verse 11, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. How many more people do you think sold a field and pretended to bring all the money and didn't bring all the money? Well, it doesn't record that, but I think the number is zero. Because great fear went throughout. The reminder, and a a proper fear, the reminder that this is a holy God that we can't play around with. We ought not to pretend against because He knows hearts. And we won't get away with it. Now, that doesn't mean we will always receive the temporal punishment obviously, but we will not get away with hypocrisy. That brings us to today and the Lord's Supper. Communion. I I told you that there was an implicit place where some were struck dead. I want to read to you the words of institution of the Lord's Supper, and I will tell you where I usually stop, and then I'm going to read a few more verses after that as we approach this table. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, it says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then we begin to fence the table. By fencing the table, we say, Uh, inviting those who ought to come and keeping out those who come only at their own peril. And this is what Paul says. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now that's a gracious warning. It's, It's not a big threat. It's a gracious warning. He goes on to tell us how to deal with that. Let a person 
examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He says there is a way to come. Examine yourself. Make sure you are in relationship with Christ. And then eat and drink. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, if you don't know Christ or if you have sin in your life you're unwilling to deal with, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now take as the background to all that. What kind of judgment might he send? We're not used to that. If we ever talk about judgment, we tend to be talking about those people out there who are going to get judged. And that's where I usually stop. And then I explain. And then I invite people to make sure you have dealt with sin, that you have repented. But here's what Paul went on to say. Once again, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That, verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul tells the church in Corinth and God's, uh, God's plan by His Holy Spirit was to preserve this word to tell the church in Columbia, South Carolina and St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church that the God who we saw act in the Old Testament and in the book of Acts and in the New Testament, that God still takes sin seriously. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. Now you say, what an awful message. It would be an awful message if we ended there. But the precise reason that we are going to the table is because it did not end there. And that is the good news, the great news of the gospel. That's the beauty of taking the Lord's Supper frequently. It's a reminder of the danger of sin and the high cost that was paid for it. The danger is if we continue to sin and refuse to repent, even if we are believers, there are consequences, there are ramifications. If you refuse to repent and you pretend as though you are covering your sin, the high cost was not to us but to Christ. The good news and the great news is that in Christ we don't have to receive temporal punishment. And we will not receive eternal punishment. That's the great news of the gospel. In Christ we don't have to receive temporal punishment and we will not receive eternal punishment.
So what's it mean to be in Jesus Christ? Knowing that He died on the cross and He didn't deserve it because He lived a perfect life. There was in Him no hypocrisy. And knowing that that death was for our sins, not just for sins, for our sins, and trusting in Him alone for salvation. And then living a life of repentance, and that includes as we approach this table. As a young priest, Martin Luther was about to do his first Holy Communion. He was so awed by the holiness of God, and he didn't know Christ yet, but he was so overwhelmed by uh, the awful holiness of God that he froze up. He could not move, and he could not even do that communion. Fast forward to another young preacher about to do his first communion and feeling some of the same thing. And then when the table was uncovered, seeing the elements that were covered with the lid, with the cross on the lid, and he saw his face in the cross. And to his mind came the words, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. And so we come today. In the name of Christ, trusting in Him alone, and if that is you, then you are welcome. And you will not be struck dead because Christ was struck dead on your behalf. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we come to you in the name of Christ and ask that you would help us to examine ourselves. We would tend to examine and overlook. Don't let us do that in these moments. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.